The Gospel of Luke, starting in chapter 13. I'll just start reading. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So Pilate had killed some Galileans. And Jesus says, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all those other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So the, the general philosophy of the time, which you can see the, the law of Moses absolutely talks about blessings following righteousness and curses following waywardness or a life of sin, a life away from, from the covenant with God. And so they, you know, these people were killed, so they assumed it must be uh, a, a curse from God. Uh, without understanding that God often gives us time to work things out. So, I mean, I think most people today understand there's not always a, an immediate hammer that falls as soon as we take one wrong step. And sometimes we don't see from outside observation, we don't see the curse even come during this lifetime. Although when we live apart from God, we, um, we're, we're we're experiencing it in many ways, even if it's not obvious. We might have external success, but we're living in that reality, and and there's going to be some understanding of that. So anyways, Jesus addresses this philosophy that they have and asks, do you think that they're greater sinners? And he says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So he's he's calling out their religious thinking and thinking, well, I didn't die like that, so I'm good with God. And he's saying, hey, examine your own life or you will perish just like they did. Four, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? So there's a similar thing. A tower fell, people died. He's saying again, do you think that it's just because they're big sinners that this happened? He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So he's warning them a second time that examine your own life. Stop, stop living in your pride, assuming bad things happening to other people means they're bad people and you're a good person. Examine yourself. Are you right with God? And then he tells them a parable. The fig tree uh, represents Israel in, in the scriptures. He says, a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. He's showing that God the Father... Is allowing one more chance. Perhaps Jesus is is the uh, vineyard keeper here, saying, "I will, you know, <laughs> I'll take care of it here one last time and give it a chance." Um, because God did cut down Israel after this, although some of them did bear fruit, right, and that remnant was saved. And then Jesus is teaching in one of the synagogues on a Sabbath, and there's a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit that caused her to be bent over double, and she couldn't even straighten up for 18 years. That sounds awful. He walks over to her, calls, and says, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. 
He laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again, and she began glorifying God. But the synagogue official was indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for eighteen long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? So again, he's calling out the religion in the heart of the people. The spirit of religion would have us all think that we are good with God because of our particular practices and theologies. And not not have to live it, the spirit of religion makes us believe we don't have to fully give ourselves to the way the living way of God and so he's encountering that and he's calling it out and saying you if, if this philosophy were true you wouldn't let your animals out this is an actual woman a, a you know, a, a member of the tribe of Israel, someone who God has particularly made for his purposes, and you think she shouldn't be healed, but you can let out your ox or your donkey? And then he's going to go straight into, well, and the, the, the crowd was rejoicing and glorious. Um, his opponents were humiliated by this, you know, what he was saying. And then he goes on to say, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To whom shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. So here he's contrasting the way of religion, which is the last few stories, with the way of the kingdom and he says the kingdom it starts out very small like a mustard seed we you know elsewhere when he tells the story he says it's the smallest of seeds and yet it grows into the mightiest of trees and so it, the kingdom starts out small in us and it starts out small in the world it started with just jesus and then it was his 12 or however many disciples and then very quickly it became three thousand. And then, you know, continue to spread. But then it needs to come to complete fulfillment. And that brings us to our day when all the prophets talked about the, this kingdom coming in greater glory in these end times. And so that takes each one of us. So on one hand, God has a, an overall plan for the world, for mankind. On the other hand, he has a plan specifically for you and I. And so for you and I, it has to start out small and has to grow to where it consumes us, our life. So we're not living according to a religion, but we enter into a new way of life. We have a new way of thinking, a new way of understanding, because we have an entirely new life. That we are consumed by the kingdom. And then we will be gathered with others that we're the, the kingdom is a reality for a people. So it happens with an individual, and it happens with a people. And as he was passing along from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem, someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? 
And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So this is, this is a heavy word. He's saying it's a narrow door. He's saying most who try to enter won't be able to. 25. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So again, he's he's given a, a strict warning against the religious, because he's, these are the ones saying, Lord, open up. He says, I don't know where you're from. And they say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me. So he's, he's speaking specifically to the to the religious at heart, who are not living his life, but are believing that they are good with him because they've claimed him. But he says there will be those that come from east and west and north and south will recline at the table of the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. So God has no problem taking down the high and mighty and lifting up small remnant peoples to fulfill his purposes. He's not a respecter of persons. He's a... A uh, God with a plan and a purpose in mankind, for mankind, and he wants people who give themselves to his purposes. And then some Pharisees approached him and said, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow. And the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent her. Sorry, and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, he know, he's not saying it here, but he knows he's going to be killed. They're right, he's going to be killed. and he's. But instead, he's speaking about Jerusalem and how it's, it was set up as this, this glorious city of David, this, this city for the people of God, to worship God and be the people of God. And yet, it is continually come against, disregarded the prophets, killed the prophets who got in the way of their the people living their own lives with their own version of religion, not living God's life. And clearly God is speaking through him here because, you know, Jesus is a, a young guy, so he's, th- this is the Father speaking right through him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. 
Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me. So now this is Jesus. Um, and he says, and, and this is one way we know that the, the Jews are going to uh, accept the, their Messiah in mass before he comes. He says that very clearly here. He's very clearly not talking about a spiritual Jerusalem, which in other places the scripture talks about. But he says, you will not see me until the day comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when he, when he came back the first time, he didn't show himself to many people. He only showed himself to those who were his disciples, who were believing. He showed himself to some 500 people, but they were the people who, who believed in him. He, he probably gave a, a, there was a bit of a grace to his brothers, because I don't know that they believed in him. They pretty much didn't believe in him as far as we know at that point um but he showed himself to them as a you know they were his brothers but for the most part he just showed himself to his disciples but there is a day coming when every knee will bow everyone will know that he's come and but he says this day will not come until uh, jerusalem has and i don't know you know who knows does that mean every single person in jerusalem does that just mean kind of a majority of people we don't know but there will be this change then we see it happen in the people of Israel. The 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 body of Messiah is is growing there. Um, so these things are happening. And then we're on to chapter fourteen. We see in Luke more than in others that he often would dine at the Pharisee's house. And so this particular occasion, he is have uh, you know at one of the the leaders' houses of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread with them, and they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So they're kind of watching him, putting him on the spot. Again, this this may be entrapment, that they've got this man there suffering this way in their home. At the same time, they've got Jesus. Um, good chance it's in, they're trying to entrap him. But he turns the table on him knowing their hearts, and says, is it lawful to heal or not? And so then they're silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. So this is, you know, very similar to what he just said in the last chapter. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place." So that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the meaning here is quite clear. He he explains it himself. Go about life humbly. In, In whatever you show up, don't presume uh, anything about yourself. Live unto the Lord. Depend on the Lord. Look for what the Lord is doing. And go humbly about your life and in your encounters with others. And don't take any position unless it's clearly given. 
So many people are out rushing to represent God when they haven't grown up in these things. They haven't grown up in his life. But they presume, because they've got a fervor for God, that they should go waving around his banner when really they should go seeking him. Seek him and his kingdom. Grow up. Be made a mature son. And then he will send you out in the way that he will when you are ready rather than running off under your own ideas and your own religious fervor. Don't presume you represent God just based on your own ideas of what it means, but truly seek Him. Be transformed until you have a place where you've reached a humility that you don't really care how God uses you. You only want to be you know, in His will, that He uses you how and when He calls you, and you're looking for nothing else. That a simple life lived with the Lord is the greatest, highest honor for you. Then he will lift you up and then he can use you. We see this with, with all the great heroes of the Bible. This is, this is the order. And yet too many people presume that they got to go make a big splash. And that, that by their might and by their own power, they're going to bring glory to God. You don't think God can bring himself glory? He has to have you trumpeting about in your immaturity. And um, I'm sure I'm not speaking to the listener here, but in general, this is common out in the world. He wants a transformed people. He wants people who humble themselves and seek him and are transformed and lifted up. And he takes us through so much discipline that all the fervor that we had in our youth is, uh, well, we, we should always have fervor. It's probably the wrong word. But all the self-driven ideas, all the self-focus, all the self-glory should be disciplined out of us. It has to be disciplined out of us in order for us to represent the Father. And then he goes on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, you may also invite you excuse me, otherwise they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So he's saying, if you're thinking, if you're, you know, I don't know, I'm sure this this applies, I think, to people, but I think it probably had a much bigger application in those days. Um, but if you're entertaining people for a meal and you're, you know, you're spending lavishly on this party to, to entertain people, if you only entertain people, you're, you're wanting to impress or you're, um, you know, they're, they're likely to invite you back in return. Um, you're doing it for yourself. Whereas if you were to do this nice gesture for those who cannot repay you, then you're doing it for them. Then you're doing it for God. And of course, the story, I mean, it's just about a dinner party. But when it comes to our life, how do we live our life? If, you know, other places, he says, who, you know, if you're just nice to your friends, well, even the sinners are like that. Do we live our life for God, for others? Or do we live our life... When we, when we think of ourselves living our life for our friends, 
well, you know, mankind, humans, people, we, friendship is an important part of life. And so really we're living it for ourselves in that way. And so somebody calls out to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he gives a parable in response. He says, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So he's saying there's a way of God. He's saying, but those who are immediately invited, those who are closest, those who are religious, who think that they're good with God, um, will find a way, find an excuse, and do it quite, you know, oh, please excuse me. You know, they, they do it quite formally to, to not be included in the way of God. He says, I will bring people from outside who you would think would not get to attend this banquet, this dinner. Uh, and they will come in. So he's saying uh, he's not impressed by religion. He needs a people willing to die to their own life and live for his life. And the next story shows that quite profoundly. He's, he's now he's moving along. Large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So that's a really hard word, right? That, that we have to live for him and not even our own family. And keep in mind, the law of Moses makes it very clear that we should be loyal to our own family, that we must honor our parents. And so he's putting, and in other places, Jesus calls them out for the Pharisees for having made up religious rules to not honor their parents. So it's not that Jesus doesn't believe in that, but he's he's getting people to examine their own deep motivations in life. And he says, are you willing to give up everything in order to follow me? You know, the reality is, for the vast majority of us, he's not calling us not to love our father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters. But, he is calling us to live for him first and foremost and to not let anything, no matter how close of a relation, stop us from living for him. Now, if our father and mother aren't living according to this way, then it, it, there might be some misunderstanding, some difficulty in those relationships, but that can never stop us from seeking the Lord. And the, obviously, there's no reason that anyone should have to be rude to their father and mother, Um and of course I'm thinking as an adult I guess it would be a little more complicated if you were a, a child but 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 I think we're we're talking about adults here now wife and children um well 
they, they, they are your family that you're supposed to be leading, right? Or if you are the wife, it's a, a little more complicated because your husband's supposed to be leading, but if you're following the Lord and he's not, well, you you got some difficulties. And so that's why you always want to marry um, someone who's seeking the Lord as fervently as you are because if you come to the Lord afterwards, then that's that that's going to present some difficulties. And of course, you know, Paul teaches that, hey, if your spouse is not stopping you from seeking the Lord, then stay married because you, and you can pray for that spouse. Um, if the spouse is stopping you, then you, you got to get out. And so we can see that ties in nicely with exactly what Jesus taught. And then, but so Jesus is saying a heavy word. He, yes, and even his own life. So it's not just others around. You have to be willing to hate your own life to be his disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You have to be willing. In matter of fact, you have to. Not just be willing. In this case, because hopefully with our family relationships of this world, hopefully there's not too much... I, I mean, I would say in my family, there's certainly been some misunderstanding, but I still get along great with all of them. So I haven't, I, you know, I haven't had to to uh, have any kind of major problem with my dad or sister. Um, they They might not think I'm <laughs> all there <laughs> because they don't fully understand the kingdom and, and what's been going on, but we get along great. Um, now, when it comes to your own life, though, that is the most severe thing of all. Are you willing to hate your own life? What does that mean? All the things that you want and desire in your own life, your own ideas of how your life should go, are you willing to give those up? Are you willing to repent and turn around and go in the way that God calls you? He says, if you are not, you cannot be my disciple. And here's the deal. Even if you had a per, you know, a wonderful religious uh, backing, and you didn't have, I, because you know, I didn't, I, I was raised in the church, but I, I was went far, far away from that, and so my background is not wonderful and perfect, um, and so the, there was some clear transformation that happened here. In my view, it's harder for somebody who grew up in a strong religious background and they never committed uh, any of the bigger sins because the the sneaking sins of pride uh, and um, just religion, um, those are more insidious. But those are every bit, I mean, what caused, what caused Satan to rebel in the first place? His pride of place, right? That he should be the son of God, not mankind. And so Adam and Eve, he got them to say, oh yeah, we can take knowledge of good and evil for ourselves instead of waiting on God for it. So these things are are deep and insidious and absolutely must be died to. And the religion that we, if we grew up in that type of circumstance, we can believe that we are set with God. And that's what a lot of today's, uh, what we've been reading is is talking about, hey, you who think you're set with me, this is a strong word for you, that you need to seek me. You need to die to your own life and be willing to follow me. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
So we have to seek him, we have to be willing, and then we will go through it. That doesn't mean we, obviously we're not going to like throw ourselves up on, a, on an actual cross. It's metaphorical in that sense, but he means he will take you through difficulties, and you have to be willing to accept those difficulties. And there are some who, um, there, there are many he he says, you know, the 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 way is narrow. So many will try to come this way, but then when the difficulties come, they'll turn around and they won't continue on this way. And so he says, "Will you pick up your cross?" He knew he was going to the cross at this point. We've made that clear. He knew that was his end, and he kept going forward anyways. So for each of us, we're not going to be thrown up on a cross, but we do have difficulties that he will take us through. And they're excruciating. They're not called baptism of fire for no reason. They're difficult. Are you willing to live for this in order to be his disciple? Uh, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying... This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions." He's saying, you know, are you willing to commit to this? Because it's going to cost you. You're going to have to give up everything. Now, does that mean, you know, he says elsewhere, look, I I will give you more. You will be blessed. The blessing of my life is much greater than what you would have created on your own. But there has to be this life of faith. You have to give up your rights, give up your ideas, and submit them all at his feet. And then he will raise you up. He will teach you. He will transform you to be a new creation, a spiritual uh, person that you're meant to be from the first place instead of the fallen man that you've lived up till now. And he will bless you. And as you live, as we live according this way, we see, wow, this is a much better life than I would have had if I would have kept going my own way. That that is always the case. He loves us. He wants good things for us. But we have to be willing to understand and accept and repent that our own fallen ways are not as good. And that's difficult because there are ways. We live with them however old we are. (laughs) We've lived with them all this time. And so to, to accept that my ways are not as good. This thing I've always wanted. I've I've spent years desiring this thing. And you're saying I have to give it up? Well, that's a heavy cost. He's saying, well, yeah, weigh the cost. Right, do you really want all the blessing that I promise? Because there is a heavy cost. If you take it, if you do it, I will raise you up. I will bless you more than you can imagine. But you have to be willing to pay this price. 34. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he's saying, I've never experienced this. I, I, I assume Saul has to sit around a long time for it to become tasteless, but, but I, don't, I don't really know about that. But apparently, if salt sits around long enough, it becomes tasteless. And then what, are you going to throw tasteless salt on your food? No, it'd be kind of useless, right? You just throw it away. He says, if you're living your life and you're claiming to be for him, but you're really not living this life, you're really not seeking him, being raised up, being transformed, then it's, it's, it's all useless. And again, my personal beliefs are if we accept Jesus, I, I could be wrong on this. I mean, I, I, but I, I just believe if we accept Jesus you know, with our, you know, because other scripture says with our mouth and in our heart, we're going to make it into heaven after we die. So that's another thing. That's not what he spent his life preaching and teaching about. He's teaching about entering the kingdom, fulfilling God's purposes for your life in this world. And if you do, your eternity, eternity forever, is going to be far greater than if you live this short hundred years for yourself in your own fallen ideas. And so he's, I believe he's not talking about whether or not you'll make it into heaven after you die. He's talking about whether you can enter heaven while you live whether you can enter the mind of God, the heart of God, to be the glory of God on this earth, to save others, to be a blessing to other people. He's saying, if you have ears to hear, hear this. This is the way in. Come, it will be better for you if you choose this way. But there is a cost. Know it and accept it so that as you're going through it, you don't turn back. But you say, God is good. I have faith that even as I go through these difficulties, what he has set before me is greater. There's joy set before me, even as Jesus said. And that's it for today. God bless you.